Some folks may call me a bit of a nonprofit guru. And I suppose it's true that I've learned quite a lot about how nonprofits operate, and I definitely find it rewarding to share what I've learned. But there are seriously big gaps in my knowledge base. And one of the biggest gap topics for me, the capital campaign. For those of you struggling to hit payroll next week, you might think this is not the podcast for you. But I can't tell you how many heroic nonprofit leaders have dug an organization out of a ditch and driven it right into the thrill of a capital campaign. So listen up and file it away. About 10 years ago, my mom told me that I was related to someone who works at some kind of fundraising company. I'm ashamed to say that I kind of dismissed her until a number of years later when I was facilitating a board retreat for an organization launching a campaign. And in walks my second cousin, Tom Kassane. Tom Kassane and his brother Bob, who runs the firm, they run one of the biggest fundraising consulting companies out there. It is the go-to firm if you're considering a capital campaign. I really should have followed up with my mother sooner. Tom and his wonderful staff all of them rock stars in the nonprofit fundraising world. One of those rock stars joins us today, and we'll tackle a few meaty questions about capital campaigns. I'll use those five questions every journalist needs to communicate in a story, who, what, when, where, and why. But I may not use them in that order. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. A few months ago, I moderated a panel with one of Tom's, my second cousin's, senior staff members at CCS, Eric Javier. I liked him a lot. I thought he was really smart, and he was also a well-behaved panelist. Not something you could always count on as a moderator. Eric is the principal and managing director with CCS. For the last 20 years, Eric has advised leading executives, trustees, and development leaders from across the nonprofit sector. He has helped design and direct more than 200 fundraising campaigns and initiatives that have raised more than $2 billion to make a positive difference in communities all around the world. Clients have ranged from the University of North Carolina system to Congregation Road F. Shalom in New York to the Cleveland Orchestra to NRDC, the National Resource Defense Council. Hospitals, schools, houses of worship, nonprofits across the widest possible range of causes and issues. Eric is in the business of strengthening and fueling our sector, and he's done this for decades. I know that every one of our listeners, if they could meet you in person, would join me in saying, not just welcome, but thank you. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to be with you. So first off, will you tell my second cousin, Tommy, I said hi? I will. Very easy to do. Happy to do it. <laughs> so um, speaking of Tom and Bob and your colleagues, very quick words about CCS and what you do. Sure, absolutely. So um, Joan, CCS is a strategic fundraising firm. Um, our mission is to partner with nonprofits and nonprofit leaders for transformational change. Um, we work with about 500 clients every year. Last year, we worked in 500 cities around the world. We have about 300 plus employees and probably three or four billion dollars under management right now or advisement in terms of campaigns. Um, and all those are great numbers, and it's a great CCS commercial. But I think um, you know, I'd sum it up by saying that. Tom, Bob, all my colleagues, uh, I think what we enjoy most is really the partnership we have with these amazing leaders in the nonprofit sector to um, help them fulfill their mission. 
Uh, and in this, you and I and all of your colleagues at CCS are very much kindred spirits. It's a, um, it's really a privilege to um, help nonprofits be more effective, to generate resources, all of those things, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, it's. Uh, I think privilege is the right word. Um, we're we're very lucky to be in a field where um, you can feel like you're making a difference uh, every day, or at least most days, right? Um, yeah, most days. I'd say almost every day I get something that makes me feel like uh, I had a really good day at the office. Yeah. Um, so um, as I as I said in the open, uh, uh, capital campaigns is a gap in my own knowledge base. So there's a lot of ground to cover and information sh uh, to share. And I thought it would be useful to start by sharing vocabulary. So help listeners out there define what you mean when you say campaign. Sure. So, you know, I think let's let's start with a um, maybe a little bit more of a technical definition, right? Because I think we we use campaigns in this space in many different ways. So um, for our purpose around capital campaigns, um, I would define it as an intensive fundraising effort to meet extraordinary financial needs of an organization by raising a specific amount of money over a defined period of time. Okay, so that's the technical definition. That's the technical definition. So, and, uh, go so ahead. no, no, you go ahead. Well, I th so so what's what's the street version? Um, <laughs> you, you know, an organization raises a certain amount of money year in year out. You referenced it in your intro, uh, Joan, but an organization then has to do something spectacular: build a building, start a new program, build up endowment, and you need to go from whatever amount you're, you tend to raise on average year to year and to really make a leap, right? That's, that's what a campaign does. Great. I think that's, that's a very useful um, street definition. Now, maybe the folks who aren't listening to this podcast said, well, I'm never going to build a building, so I don't need to listen to this podcast. So I hope that um, it, we'll actually had try to we'll promote it in such a way to remind people that it's not, we're not always talking about bricks and mortar here. So it would be really useful if you could give us a couple of examples, maybe one that is bricks and mortar and maybe one that, that feels really different. Yeah, no, it's, that's, it's a great point. Um, so, so I'll give you quick examples, Joan, of um, I think three types of campaigns, a capital campaign, an endowment campaign and a comprehensive campaign. Um, so let me start with capital because it is, like you said, I think what most people think about bricks and mortar, um, building a new wing to a hospital, building uh, a new community center, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So Joan, I think, I think we have um, some overlapping affinity to this place, but um, we uh, have been working with St. Barnabas medical center in, mm. Short Hills, New Jersey for a number of years now. And uh, at the beginning of this year, earlier this year, um, we had a wonderful, just awesome ribbon cutting and opening ceremony for the Cooperman Family Pavilion. So it's a brand new medical pavilion. It is state of the art and it is just gorgeous. Many private rooms, uh, new intensive care unit, new neonatal intensive care unit and on and on. And it is really transforming. It has transformed the way that that hospital can deliver care. 
And uh, before I talk about my own affinity and connection to St. Barnabas and what I know about that pavilion, um, how much money did you raise over how long a period of time? Sure. So, um, so that the project was um, a $200 million project. The campaign, philanthropy, uh, comprised half of that. So the campaign raised uh, about $100 million. And that was done over uh, about a four-year period of time. Great. Okay. Um, so briefly, um, my wife was uh, hospitalized. So I have a lot of affinity to St. Barnabas. Uh, and I know that it needs <laughs> the things that you were able to help them raise the money for. Uh, my, my twins, when they were eight weeks old, um, <clears throat> contracted pneumonia and they were, they were hospitalized there. And just last year, I actually watched the finishing touches get put on the pavilion when my wife was in the neurological ICU after a subdural hematoma. And it was exciting to see what was happening there. I did not, I've not, fortunately, my wife did not stay long enough to actually, um, be there when the ribbon cutting <laughs> ceremony happened. Um, yeah, it's a really good thing. But, um, my, when I see that building and I think, oh my gosh, Eric, you must have such a sense of pride about that. Yeah, you know, um, you know for, for your listeners who have been part of a campaign and certainly for our work, the sense of um, just accomplishment and partnership that, that you feel when you see something come to fruition, right? There's something that has been built or created that either didn't exist before yep. or has been totally improved uh and again the, the the building as you have seen joan is it is a means to an end right the building Absolutely. itself is 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 not the goal but the care that they're able to deliver to your wife to you know twins who are now newborns and are premature and, and it goes on and on so it, it's very fulfilling so for many, that would be beyond the sort of beyond the imagination. So now let's think about uh, an example of something and that's pretty that's your standard fare. Big hospital builds big new wing. Yeah. Let's have another example. Right. So so that's an example of a capital campaign. Um, you know, and then there there are many examples of uh, endowment campaigns. So years and years ago, um, I worked with uh, the town school, which is a private pre-K through eighth grade school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and this is a, a school that um, had really the wonderful, like you know, the right space. So they didn't need a capital campaign, but what they what they were really lacking, what they really wanted to do to move the needle, um, was build their endowment, and to build their endowment for a couple of important reasons. One is to really provide some some fuel and firepower to the faculty in terms of the, the you know the way that they could hire and who they could hire and the type of curricular development that they needed to to be a great school in the 21st century and then of course around scholarships right private education is very expensive but um, you know this is a school that believes that you know many should attend even if you can't afford it and so endowment for scholarships was a big thrust of that campaign as well so again not not brick and mortar but funds for endowment that were really central on how they delivered their mission a question for you eric um i believe that there probably is a little bit of confusion in the marketplace around terminology what's an endowment versus a reserve oh great question so 
a pure endowment would be, you know, a financial fund where the corpus is not spent, that it lasts in perpetuity, and that the the earnings, some percentage of the revenue that is generated from that corpus is um, injected into the operating budget year in, year out. Is that what the town school was doing? Yes. You know, institutions, especially the big universities, I think we hear about huge endowments for, for the Harvards and the Yales of the world. You know, many private institutions have have substantial endowments, but the town school is a relatively younger school, um, was really behind its peers when it came to its endowment size. So then a reserve is something different. Right. So a reserve, um, you know, a reserve could could operate like an endowment, but really a reserve is, um, I, w- I, would, I would liken it to, you know, a rainy day fund, a savings fund that, that you could spend if needed, if there was an emergency, you know, or if there was a special initiative you wanted to launch, et cetera. Great. Okay. So there's two different kinds of examples. Um, <clears throat> I got one more for you. Good. I'm ready. Uh, so, the, so the last one um, I would call um, a comprehensive campaign. Um, and you see this most commonly for colleges and universities, for, for larger institutions, but um, you know, small and mid-sized as well. And, and, and in essence, a comprehensive campaign would be a campaign that is raising funds for multiple purposes. So example, I'm, I'm currently working with Bard College, uh, Hudson Valley. This is, this, is, this is actually really funny. So I, I just need to, to, to say to our listeners that until I did my pre-interview with Eric, I didn't know about the St. Barnabas Pavilion. And I just, it's just now that I know that he's working at Bard where my son went to college. <laughs> Okay. So anyway, it's actually the most beautiful campus. It has a small number of students. I, I jokingly say it's like an acre per kid or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. It is beautiful. And uh, what, what was your son's major? Uh, uh, <laughs> um, something like experimental humanities. Um, and I, I bet that there are parents out there listening who have college students and you're probably smiling because you know, there are those schools that have majors like that. And then there are schools that don't. And, um, he's a drummer, a musician, and, uh, you know, did a lot of stuff with art installation, yes. spent a lot of time at the music building, that sort of thing. So. Yeah. So, so, sounds like, sounds like a Bard graduate. It, absolutely. <laughs> so Bard is this fantastic place and, and I'm, I'm very proud of our relationship with Bard. Um, it's actually, uh, we're, we're, it's the second campaign we're helping them with. So, so just to bring this example to light of a comprehensive campaign, um, the previous campaign that we helped them with, which ended several years ago, you know, the college raised uh, almost a little over $500 million over, uh, it was probably a seven or eight year period. And um, the funds were for capital needs. So there were some, some buildings and renovations on campus uh, for endowment right, that we talked about, so for scholarships and faculty support, for program dollars, as you know from Bard, they, they do so many creative things that obviously require funding, they do. and then lastly, um, for, you know, annual fundraising, so what they raise year in, year out, which I think all your listeners can appreciate, was also part of the campaign, so comprehensive that in that it was all-inclusive, and all the dollars raised over that time frame counted towards the goal. So, 
it's a perfect segue to a question that I really wanted to ask you, which is that I've heard our organizations talk about capital campaigns and their case statement is this kind of crazy kitchen sink thing. And it, it doesn't hang together, right? It, it doesn't, there isn't a holistic vision of what the capital campaign's outcome will be. And I don't know if that's about there being too many cooks in the case statement kitchen, if you will. Um, but so I was going to ask you what makes a what makes a five star case statement. And Bard is a really good the Bard example is a really good one because it it is a bit bit of a kitchen sink. Right. Yeah. Th this is um, truly one of those proverbial rabbit holes. And so so what I would say about a case statement, uh, Joan, you know, I'll, I'll talk about maybe what kind of some of the key ingredients, but even before then, there's two points. A case statement should be useful. And number two, you know, nonprofit leaders should see the, a case statement as, as a tool and not as an end in itself, right? I think the misperception is that we need to come up with some beautiful document, some really glossy brochure, and this, this publication, this document is going to raise all this money for us, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, and it's a real misperception, but rather it's a tool that you certainly share with potential donors. Um, but I think more importantly, a great case statement gives nonprofit leaders the language, the story to be convincing when they're talking to their donors. Uh, that, that's just, a, I think, a, a way that I would distinguish what, really what a case statement is. It's so interesting because when I think about all of the things that you described in the case of Bard, for example, it feels like the, exactly the kind of rabbit hole that could cause a, a campaign to not be very successful because there isn't something that glues it all together. Is there, so, so when you were, you know, when folks were making the pitch at Bard, um, did they make a pitch depending on who they were talking to? Because usually a capital campaign has a, has a single theme that everybody sort of rallies around. In the case of a, a barred, you know, comprehensive campaign, do you target your pitch depending on who you're talking to? It feels like the barred comprehensive campaign can feel a little all over the place. Yeah, right. That was a great question. So, so I think the answer to your question is um, yes and yes, in that, um, you know, you... I think great campaigns and organizations who do this really well do a great job in tailoring your pitch depending on the, the sort of interests and preferences of the donor. But that no matter that tailored pitch, it is tied together in some sort of singular meta narrative, you know, if you will. And I think this is this this is what makes a case statement. I think effective, right? It it articulates where the institution is headed and how, if successful, how that institution, how that organization can better fulfill its mission, right? And that's the thing in the case of Bard, in the case of St. Barnabas Medical Center, and in, in 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 the case of for all your listeners, for your own organization there is a distinct and unique mission that each of these organizations have and live by and work to fulfill every day. A campaign is simply a means to that end, right? It is providing the fuel to better fulfill your mission because you need 
the right space because you need endowment for scholarships, because you need the funding for a new program, et cetera. Yeah, I think you have to be, it feels like though it's important to be specific because the, the bottom line is that used properly, m- money, financial resources should always point you f- closer to your mission now. That's right. So we are talking with Eric Javier, who is a principal and managing director with CCS, the go-to fundraising consulting firm in the, I don't know, the Milky Way like. And um, for 20 years, Eric has been advising and leading executives, trustees, and development directors from across the nonprofit sector. He has been instrumental in fueling the nonprofit movement. So um, we are talking about capital campaigns. We just talked a little bit about case statements and the different kinds of capital campaigns. Let's talk about the ARC of a successful campaign. There's got to be some basic fundamental elements. Do you want to walk us through that? Uh, sure. So, Joan, I think um, this is the focus I know of a, a lot of your own work, right? But if you if you think about why an organization needs to do a capital campaign, it's because, as we said earlier, that organization needs sort of extraordinary financial resources to accomplish something. Why they need the funding usually emerges from some thoughtful strategic planning. And I know that's been, that's a big part of the work that you do yes. with nonprofits. Um, so when you think about the arc of a successful campaign, the campaign really emerges from that type of strategic planning, right? Where do we want to go? How do we better f- best fulfill our mission? Um, what are some of the initiatives, new programs, financial underpinnings that we need to address if we are going to do that? And so coming out of some sort of strategic planning, what we would normally do is conduct some sort of um, campaign feasibility study. It's a way to begin to test the case for a campaign, begin to prepare um, an organization's uh, donor audiences that a campaign is coming, get input from key stakeholders, et cetera. Will you do me a favor, Eric? Pause the, um, don't pause, but park the, the, the issue of board engagement and like what feasibility looks like and when you, when you, when you give the thumbs up and when you give the thumbs down. So for the purpose of this discussion of the arc of a successful campaign, let's assume that the organization uh, flies through the feasibility study with flying colors. And then I'll ask you in a few minutes about what thwarts that. Yeah, sure. So, so after the feasibility study, um, you get you know great input on really how you know what the campaign goal should be, um, how it should be executed, uh, the right messaging, and so forth. And then you would move into what we would call the campaign organizational phase, and that's where you really put the building blocks in place. You get your case statement done. Um, you begin to recruit your campaign leaders. You dig into your top prospects are going to be. And then after your organizational phase, you really move into the leadership gifts and quiet phase of a campaign. I think most of your listeners will will be familiar with that, where you're really in a quiet way, not public way, really securing some of those leading major pace setting gifts to get your campaign off the ground and well on its way to the goal. And then eventually the campaign will close out with a public phase where uh, an organization's really, you know, entire community will be invited to participate before the campaign closes out successfully. 
And do you go public at a point at which there's a very good likelihood that you're going to hit your goal, correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> big question, big question we get. And, and I think there are many criteria and we won't belabor it, but I think that's a big one, right? I think the beauty about fundraising, the beauty about campaigns is that it's pretty easy to tell if you've been successful or not, right? What was your goal and did you reach it? And I think going public uh, is when the organization says, well, this is what our goal is. And I think the beauty about these campaigns is that you have control. The organization has control on what you announce and what, as to what that number is and um, doing it in a way that you ensure that you're going to be successful is really important for, for the organization's community. The the other the other thing, and I, I talk with clients a lot about this, is that people want to play for a winning team. And so when you go public and you say, we're raising X and we have already raised Y, people are like, okay, I want to be on this team because I, I want to be part of reaching this goal because it, it feels like they're going to they're gonna hit it. That, that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's... People want to be part of something that's successful. And I think, um, you know, the timing of when, when, when you go public and how you approach people is a big deal. And interestingly, John, I think people also want to be, not everybody, but some people, especially leading donors, they want to be the beginning of something successful, right? They want to be the catalyst, right? So there's some people who could make sort of outsized gifts, right? And the, and the value proposition to them isn't, listen, hop on board, everyone else is doing it, and we're going to be successful. But the value proposition for some of those leading donors is you can help start something extraordinary and people will follow your lead. So will you join us? There's a, um, so I have a quick story and then I want to talk about thwarting capital campaigns. Um, so our synagogue had a capital campaign quite a number of years ago and we were one of the lead donors. And I, I thought you'd find this interesting. It also goes to a particular question. And we did want to be some part of something that felt like it was going to really transform uh, the, the synagogue and the sense of community at the synagogue and its ability to create more community um, and expand and all of those things. But we also wanted it, we, <laughs> we also wanted our names on the board out front because we wanted, in addition for it to say Tom and Mary Stein, we wanted it to, to show that we were an inclusive synagogue. And so we wanted to know how much we would have to give in order to be on that plaque because we felt like it sent a super important message about the synagogue to those who walked in the front door. And I wonder if you could just speak really quickly to that, you know, the different kinds of motivations. Um, is, that a, is that a good thing that we did? I mean, like, we don't, didn't need to have our name on the plaque. We had a particular motivation from having our name on the plaque. Yeah. Yeah, well, John, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, I I found it um, heartening and and really interesting to hear some of um, the ways that our our worlds kind of overlap and you sharing some of these experiences. Um, your listeners know that when you're raising money, you're dealing with people, and people have many different personalities, and I think people have certainly many different and certainly more than one motivation for giving. I think to your point. Yep. And, you know, if you look at every survey and all the research around donor motivations, um, 
at the top of the list usually is some version of making an impact, making a difference. Uh, but also on the list, right, are things like, well, the, you know, because of who asked me, right, or issues around recognition, to your point. And so um, long way of saying that there, there are many different motivations. And, um, and I do think, especially for leaders, not only did your gift, Joan, help the synagogue accomplish the goals of its capital campaign, but it had the added impact of inspiring other people. And, and that's an important thing. It's what campaigns are about. That's what it's, and it's one of the reasons why you do a campaign and you don't talk to people in isolation because communities move forward together and you begin to sort of um, not pit one people against each other, but you use them to leverage and influence and inspire people to sort of, you know, join the cause. Yeah, so interesting, all of this. And um, so I want to move a little bit towards sort of the things that thwart capital campaigns and perhaps focus a little bit on the leadership piece, particularly the board. My sense is that they're absolutely essential to a successful capital campaign and that there are so many boards where, I mean, and this is this is a lot of my wheelhouse in my consulting business, is trying to get boards to really understand their role as ambassadors who can open doors and invite people to know more and do more for their organization and, yes, ask people for money. But my gut says a board like this, you know, a board that doesn't get it can't engage in a capital campaign. And then conversely, I find myself wondering, gee, I wonder if a capital campaign could in fact actually ignite and kickstart a board in a different sort of way. So I'm I'm interested in your observations about those things. Yeah, John, great question. So, you know, leadership is, you know, one of the three or four crucial ingredients to a successful campaign. The others being the case, which we talked about earlier, in our conversation. I think, you know, another ingredient would be your prospective donors. In other words, where's the money going to come from, right? Um, now, right. when you're a school and when you're a synagogue, you, you have parents, you have alumni, you have members. And so that's your prospect base. But the leadership question is a huge one. So we could have a whole podcast just on this topic. But what I, <laughs> what, <laughs> what I would say is that I think you're, you're absolutely right that boards are absolutely crucial for the success of a campaign, but I think it's also important for your listeners to, to, to recognize that not every board member needs to be the biggest donor, nor do they have to be the ones out there asking for money. In fact, I, I would wager that most of us don't want every one of our board members out there asking for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a, a big part of getting getting a board to a place where they're comfortable, where they can be ambassadors, is really understanding the role of the board and that, and you alluded to this, Joan, that there are many different roles that board members can really effectively play. You know, we need every board member to to stretch and sort of do the best that they can financially as donors, no question, right? For the handful of board members who can be good at this, we'd love for them to help solicit gifts as part of a campaign. But then for others where that's not appropriate and not comfortable, we need them to be that ambassador. They need to be great spokespeople. Maybe mm-hmm. they, can, they can host cultivation receptions as part of the campaign. But finding the appropriate role, uh, I think, is, is, a, is a key ingredient to um, getting your board to a place where they can really be effective leaders in a campaign. 
because a campaign is sort of this team effort. Yeah. And I think to myself, far too often campaigns are seen by boards as, oh my goodness, we're going to raise a a lot of money and people are going to expect me to give a lot of money and they're going to expect me to know people who can give a lot of money. And I, and I, I might not fall into either of those categories. And so I feel like an outlier. I feel like I'm not actually on the team. And I think what you're saying is that you have to find, the organization has to find a role for everyone so they feel like they are a contributing member of the team in a diversity of ways. The, yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, listen, a, a board member, anybody can't, can't give what they don't have, <laughs> right? So if, if a board member was put on a board because they bring some industry expertise, because they're passionate about the mission, and then all of a sudden you're in a campaign, but they're, they've never had the ability to give a six or seven figure gift, how could they be expected to do that? Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right that finding the right role at the same time, you know, let's be honest, campaigns are about raising money, extraordinary amounts of money. So if, if you don't have um, a board that is going to provide you maybe with the, the total and the aggregate level of funding, right, that maybe we'd like, it, it does place a greater importance on the type of leadership group you put together in terms of a campaign steering committee, right, or a campaign council, whatever you might call it. Uh, right. And so, um, so leadership is important. There's a way to find the right roles for boards, but ultimately in a campaign, you need leaders who can, you know, who will lead by example. And, and obviously a financial contribution is part of that. So it, it feels like, so first thing I want to say, Eric, is I, I believe there is a whole nother podcast called What Eric Javier Has Learned About Boards in 20 Years and Their Relationship to Fundraising. I think that would be interesting. That would be um, harder. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, with a, maybe a cliffhanger or something. Um, so it feels like this is exactly the right question to end our discussion for today. So you work your tails off. Maybe there's even that ribbon cutting facility over there at St. Barnabas. Uh, and, um, and you have this new facility with so much more capacity. As a result, there's even sort of more good work to do and more resources that are needed. And I have seen nonprofit leaders so frustrated by what I guess I would call campaign fatigue that their their board members declare victory and then they <laughs> and then they go into hibernation or the organization kind of goes into hibernation. And I wonder um, any advice on how to avoid that or how to think about if you're one of those nonprofit leaders how to address that. Right. Yeah, no, great point, Joan. Um, so I, I would offer two, two thoughts. Um, so the first is most organizations do need a reprieve, right? Um, they can vary in length, right? So yeah, I don't think you want to go into hibernation for, for too long because it means you're not taking advantage of an opportunity. But I would say, number one, focus on stewardship, right? If you've just finished a campaign, that means you have a whole cadre, a whole community of donors who have given you extraordinary investments. Many of those investments are going to be paid up over time, right? So you're still collecting pledges perhaps. So when I say, you know, focus on stewardship, 
when you go into hibernation or you're in non-campaign mode, it, it doesn't mean you should stop talking to people. It's no longer <laughs> asking people maybe for that major gift, but instead we should be, you know, thanking the bejesus out of people, stewarding <laughs> them, making them feel really appreciated, making sure that they they see firsthand the again impact of the investments that they've just made. And if you do that, you're really going to position them for what might come next, even if it's, you know, a year, two, three years down the road. Um, I, I, I could not agree with you more. I, in fact, I think, um, so I'm quite friendly with a, a lot of people that have connections to God's Love We Deliver, which is a um, an organization in New York City that provides uh, hot meals to um, folks around the five boroughs who are living with chronic illnesses. Right. And they just recently, actually not so recently, opened a, a brand new facility, and it's magnificent. And you know the stories that uh, you know as a as someone connected to that organization the stories of how the building is being used the stories uh, those are those are things that remind those donors why they gave in the first place and it's such a wonderful opportunity to just tell stories and i, I you know i i'm i'm all over uh, board members being ambassadors and telling stories and stewarding all through the course of the year. And then the, the renewal or the upgrade is, is actually just a, an organic, <laughs> it's, it's the organic, of course they're going to renew or upgrade because you've actually invested so time and energy in having them understand what their investment did for the organization they care about. So the same is true with a capital campaign on an even bigger scale. Yeah. Yeah. No, great, great example of that. Absolutely. So, so there's so much, good to communicate. And then, and then I think this, you know, John, the last thing I'd say is that the second piece is, is around leadership, right? So you're, you're, I'm sure your board, your, your volunteers um, have a certain amount of fatigue. If you've just, you know, been in a campaign for a number of years, but remember you've, you've brought so many people into the family as a result of a campaign. And so there's a real opportunity in this post campaign period, this hibernation, as you called it, to maybe focus on, you know, translating some of that goodwill, these new people that are now in the family to the next generation of leaders. So maybe there's some new board members that can, can, can join you because they're now more deeply engaged as you think yes. fundraising leaders for your annual program or for the next campaign. Again, you have an opportunity because um, you spent so much effort bringing people closer. So, you know, I think this post-campaign period is a time to really take advantage of that. I often talk with clients about the need to sort of build what I call an army of the engaged right. in whatever way that looks like, whether you're a $100,000 organization or a $10 million organization, that the object of the game is that you're not, in some ways, you, yes, of course, you're leading an organization, but you're, you're, you're leading a, a movement towards something. Right. And the more people engaged in your movement, the more effective you're going to be, whether those are volunteers, whether those are folks that you mobilize online, or whether they're you know, folks that wind up with their names on the plaque at the front of a building. And um, so I think that w one of my takeaways from this conversation is that this is yet another very, very skillful and important way 
to build a different kind of army and that that brings you all kinds of things that you can't just be thinking about it as the transaction of, did I hit my goal? But now I have this entire army of people who have been part of something successful. How can I further engage them? Because they already have been invited in and said yes. Absolutely. I love that. An army of the engaged. There you go. I, 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 some people think I need to come up with a non-militaristic phrase, so I'm, I'm still working on that. Okay. But um, in the meantime, thank you. Um, this has been a really great Capital Campaign 101, but with insights and perspectives that I found really, really interesting. So, Eric, thank you so much, not just, not just for the last 35 minutes, but again, thank you so much for everything that you're doing to um, fuel the nonprofit sector. Joan, likewise, thank you. And um, thanks to all your listeners for the amazing work they do every day. Uh, So I'm glad I could be part of the conversation. Thank you so much. So that wraps it up for us for this episode. I want to just offer just a couple of quick items as we close out. One is I want to ditto exactly what Eric Javier just said um, from CCS uh, Fundraising, which is thank you for the good work that you do. It is a privilege for folks like me and Eric to support your work and to what I call help the helpers. You can find uh, lots of resources that I make available at my blog at joangary.com. You can subscribe over there to the weekly posts that I send out that include podcasts, just like this one. And uh, there is now a kind of a whole library of podcast episodes. Take a look and see if there's a topic that you are trying to untangle and have a listen. And if you are so inclined, um, we have a, a membership site you should might want to learn more about if you're a smaller nonprofit. It's at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. It opens only a couple of times a year. You can learn more at that website. And if you are listening in the month of October, we have a, a free video workshop. Uh, called How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit. It will be made available during the middle to the end of October. And you can sign up for that at thrivingnonprofit.org. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.